0: This is Pulling the Strings, a podcast series about coercive control, brought to you by the Violence, Abuse and Mental Health Network and hosted by me, Dr. Kitty Saunders, me, Anjali Kaur,
1: and me, Dr. Charlie Papitas. In this series, we, your three hosts, will be talking to academic experts, authors, practitioners and coercive control survivors we'll be holding critical conversations to improve understanding, break down taboos, and expose the true extent of coercive control. To help us understand what coercive control is all about, we're joined today by Dr. Lindsay Kelland. Lindsay, welcome.
2: Hi, thank you, Charlie. So I'm a senior lecturer at the Alan Gray Center for Leadership Ethics at Rhodes University in South Africa in a small town. And I work on sexual violence, gender-based violence, but also kind of looking at the transformation of pedagogy within philosophical teaching and practice. A lot of my work in theory and philosophical work on sexual violence and gender based violence is kind of accompanied by activist work on campus as well. So, one of the things that I've been involved in since 2010, actually, is called the silent protest, which tries to symbolize the silencing effects of sexual violence. So, the silent protest is very much about raising awareness and standing in solidarity. The silent protest is also typically followed a month after by the My Body, My Choice campaign, which is a photographic campaign that really aims at kind of the reclamation of embodiment post-violence participants engage with the various ways in which their bodies are kind of impacted by society. For example, the way that meaning is projected onto our body that then comes to kind of define us in the eyes of others. And so My Body, My Choice is very much about reclaiming embodiment and that kind of subjective embodiment on the part of participants.
1: We're going to be talking about coercive control today. And I've been thinking about what coercive control really is. And it's really something that people find quite difficult to pin down in a definition. And there's several definitions of it floating around that are being used. And there isn't really a standard agreed upon
0: definition in any of the literature. The UK government has had a go and the uk home office statutory guidance on controlling or coercive behavior defines coercive control as acts designed to make a person feel inferior and or dependent by keeping them apart from friends help and support it can include taking advantage of their money and the things they have stopping their independence and controlling what they want to do it can also include acts of assault threat humiliation intimidation and other abuse that is used to harm, punish, or frighten the victim.
3: So in essence, coercive control is a pattern of violent or abusive tactics, and it's used to create a foundation for one person to exert and maintain power over another. In the context of intimate partner violence, coercive control can be considered a dynamic process where a partner makes a demand of another partner and uses threats of negative consequences to ensure that they obey that command. So coercion involves this linking of a threat with the expected behavior, and then finally to the actual consequence if those expectations are not met. And then for the partner that does the coercing, in order to know whether the other partner is complying with their demands, they will usually resort to monitoring the other partner's behavior, possibly by spying on them or stalking them. So we can see that coercive control requires a perpetrator to have power or the ability to control. And for there to be an expectation that they will use this power to enact some kind of punishment.
1: One of the really insidious things about coercive control is that those coercive dynamics can be hidden from direct observation. So it's something that's really difficult to see and observe. And coming to understand how it works inside of a relationship requires quite a lot of knowledge about the history of that relationship and what's contributed to the power dynamics in that space. Lindsay, is there anything else you think that we should be thinking about when it comes to defining coercive control? I know we've spoken a little bit about what government definitions are throwing out at us, and then we've spoken a little bit about some of the other things that we think are quite important for defining
2: or understanding coercive control. Yes, I think that one of the things that's quite important to bear in mind when thinking about this kind of abuse, particularly in relation to the threats, threats of punishment, and actually kind of following through on that punishment when demands aren't met, all of that, that kind of the ability to exert power and control needs to be understood within kind of broader systemic patriarchal systems of power. The ways in which patriarchal thinking, is embedded in structures in our society actually enables perpetrators to exercise that ability in a way that perhaps if they weren't backed up by that systemic power, that wouldn't happen quite as readily.
0: Coercive control is something that we're hearing a lot more about, especially over the last kind of five, 10 years. And it's interesting to think about why that is. You know, we have in the UK, we've got new laws around coercive control It's taking up more space in the kind of mainstream news, in the media, being highlighted as well on social media, which we all have so much access to. And it's just interesting to think about why that is the case at the moment, why that's happening. DeLuff developed the power and control wheel tool, which helps us understand coercive control as being the power center of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. But it also adds to something that we kind of already knew and accepted as part of domestic violence, which is this psychological emotional abuse. It adds a new level onto something that was already kind of part of our understanding. So we're thinking about the continuum of psychological violence and how it really permeates more deeply than just an individual threat or an individual incident. We know that psychological intimate partner violence has really serious mental health implications, and that's also receiving a lot more attention and awareness raising in all of our spheres, but including in our research. But it's interesting to see how coercive control is helping us develop out these thoughts and develop out this knowledge. So Lindsay, it'll be really interesting to hear from you why you think coercive control is so important and why it matters and why we're paying more attention to it now than ever before.
2: I think it's really important for us to be understanding coercive control and really building that into the ways in which we deal with kind of separations, uh, divorces, dealing with people who are coming out of these situations, out of abusive situations, but as Charlie was saying earlier, might not be as visible, right? So your psychological abuse, your emotional abuse is not as easily noticeable, recognizable Uh, violence itself is deemed so legitimate and particularly punishment, right? Punishment as part of gender-based violence is endemic and it's seen by a lot of society as normal and natural and inevitable. Now, when that is the case... Something that had been shown to be a forerunner to physical violence, but isn't as visible, might be even less recognizable. And so I think it's really important that people who are engaging with people who have suffered abuse or are trying to leave these kinds of situations have a decent understanding that's based on evidence coming out of scholarly work on this subject. I think it's crucial for us to be tackling this head on rather than waiting for the kind of catastrophic culmination in something really quite dangerous like femicide?
1: I think there's a broader understanding and recognition now that violence in relationships is not always situational violence. And there's a broader understanding that the dynamics that are going on in relations are rooted in a kind of power and people are trying to understand what those power dynamics are. And understanding coercive control is really essential to understanding those power dynamics that are at play in domestic violence or intimate partner violence situations.
0: I think that it provides a kind of explanatory power to a lot of behaviours that Previously, we didn't really understand about people in abusive relationships, that classic trope of, well, why didn't she leave him? And actually, coercive control provides such a clearer understanding of how those things happen, how those dynamics develop to result in this outcome, let's say, that people don't understand. And they didn't understand because they didn't understand the dynamic that was the undercurrent of absolutely everything that was going on between those two people. And I think that's really attractive because it helps us move away from this misunderstanding, victim-blame space towards something that is more reflective of the absolute catastrophic devastation that occurs when someone lives in a coercive and controlling Dynamic. I think that explanatory power is really valuable and powerful.
3: It's so important when it comes to understanding what coercive control looks like, because as you've touched on, coercive control can co- occur with other types of violence, but it can also occur on its own or act as a precursor to later violence. The National Violence Against Women survey found that although most cases of coercive control also include physical or sexual violence, there was a significant proportion of respondents about 3% that were experiencing high levels of coercive control, but no other violence. In another national sample in Finland, they found a population of older women who were not experiencing physical violence, but were reporting higher levels of symptoms of abuse, such as fear and depression, than younger women who were experiencing physical violence. So that could implicate coercive control as an important determinant of psychological distress, even in the absence of other forms of abuse. But regardless of whether other forms of abuse occur, Studies have shown that the presence and nature of coercive control in a relationship predict both the perceived and actual risk of violence. So there was one study that looked at 965 separated couples and they found that 80% of women experienced coercive control with little or no physical violence during their marriage. But then after they separated from their spouse, they experienced escalating violence for sex or threats to their life. So that could be a sign that coercive control may act as a precursor to latent violent victimization.
2: I think one of the things that's come up quite strongly from theoretical work is the idea of how different behaviors and practices along a kind of continuum end up creating an atmosphere of threat in which particular bodies, women's bodies and other kind of sexualized and gendered minorities are particularly vulnerable, right, and, and deemed viable. With coercive control, we have something quite similar to kind of the effects of the pervasiveness of the sexual objectification of women's bodies, right? Creating this threat of rape that women live with. So I imagine in these kinds of situations, in these relationships or partnerships where you cannot get out and you're isolated, right? This is part of what's happening in these situations. You're removed from your structures of social support, from family, that that threat and living under that threat can be just as psychologically damaging. In fact, maybe even more so. And it just, it strikes me as interesting that post-separation, that threat is being made good on. That's spot on, Lindsay. I want to turn to another
1: question that's been on my mind when I've been thinking about coercive control, and that I think quite a lot of people will have on their mind, is what are the boundaries of coercive control? And is there any kind of control That's acceptable in a relationship. What is the difference between compromising and being controlled? I think this is a really, really difficult question to answer, but one that I think is particularly important for perhaps young people who are just entering into relationships. But equally, people who have been in relationships for long a long time, where they have perhaps been making a lot of compromises. And they start to question whether what's going on is really compromise or control. And inevitably, there's compromise in relationships. But I think that compromise has a very specific form to it. It involves both of the people working together. But coercion, on the other hand, has a power imbalance where one person has all of the power and the other person is feeling continually helpless through that process. But a lot of the time, this idea of compromise could be used by coercive and controlling individuals, initially at least, to make people think that their relationship has healthy dynamics when, in fact, what they're doing is exerting power and diminishing the sense of control for someone else through the idea of compromise. But obviously, in an abusive relationship, the decisions that are being made by a dominant partner... We've spoken about the idea of these being kind of rules that when they get broken, they lead to consequences for the other partner. And I guess that's the critical part to keep in mind that even if we were, say, compromising a lot through our relationship and we felt we were bearing the burden of making most of the compromises or something like that, it might Still, not be the case that if we were to not make that compromise, we would be in some way punished for not doing it. But again, it's
3: difficult to think about what punishments really amount to. When you're talking about punishment as well, it's also interesting because sometimes the threat of punishment is verbalized, but sometimes it's not verbalized and it's just a basic understanding that if you do something, the other partner will react in a way that will be very negative for you. So I think also the nature and the dynamics between that person who's making that threat are not always cut and dry. And perhaps if someone overheard a conversation, they might not, upon hearing it out of context, think that it is. But in the context of the broader relationship, it is problematic.
1: I think that's exactly right, Angelie. And I'm just thinking about things that you know I'm seeing people talking about more and more. For example... Giving the silent treatment to your partner as a form of punishment, that's something we might not have thought about before. But suddenly, when we're thinking about this coercive controlling dynamic, it becomes a lot more insidious.
2: Yeah, I also wanted to add another thought. Just thinking about one of the stark differences for me between what we would consider compromise and what we might consider control goes to the autonomy of the person who's being controlled or who is making the compromise. So when I compromise with my partner, I'm still a gentle in that moment. But I'm acting out of my own endorsed values and beliefs about what is best for the partnership and how we can go forward. Under the coercive control situation, that's not there. That autonomy is completely squashed. One is acting out of fear as opposed to out of one's endorsed commitments. And I think that that must make a a massive difference in how we understand it. Actually paying particular attention to the lived experience or how it feels from the inside for the person experiencing that control. The experiential aspect is so important because I think that
0: people listening to what we're saying will probably think, well, that like I would never do that. I would never end up in a situation like that if they haven't been in one before. And I, I think it's probably a bit of a frog in the pot situation where if you went on a first date with somebody and they said well you can't call your mom and you can't wear that and you can't eat this and i'm not going to give you you know your own bus pass you'd be like no <laughs> like i'm not going to continue dating you i'm not going to continue in this relationship coercive control is built over a really long period of time where someone is slowly eroded away at and i think that's something that we should probably make clear in this is that it's not something that kind of happens overnight it's something that is a very deliberate move on the role of the perpetrator over time to to take away from you that agency and so i think understanding the experiences of the people who have been in those situations is so important
3: yeah, and I suppose perhaps a good baseline litmus test for whether something is compromised versus coercive control is to take a step back and evaluate to what extent your sense of freedom or your sense of self has changed since being in the relationship compared to before the relationship, and are you happy with that change?
2: Yes, if I might add to that, while you were speaking, this uh, metaphor—I think it's Marilyn Fry who makes the metaphor originally, but—and the idea is if you think about a bird in a birdcage right, the more you zoom in on any one of the particular wires, the less you can understand why the bird is not just flying away, right? But when you zoom out and you look at all of the wires together, then it starts to make sense. And when you read the literature on coercive control, what you've got is a number of tactics coming together in a really dynamic way. So there's not just one wire, you're being imprisoned, In some of the literature, they refer to intimate terrorism. And I thought that that was really a powerful analogy to make because seeing the complexity of the way that all the different tactics and the frequency of them and particular kinds of demands and threats that are being made, you can maybe start to get a better sense of what it might be like to be in that kind of situation. And yes, I think that is going to build up over time.
1: I think what you've said in terms of building up over time is really important and relevant. I want to just speak from the perspective of someone who has experienced coercive control. And one of the tactics that is used by a perpetrator is to systematically break people down before they use things like examples that you were giving, you know, not giving people their own bus pass. That would be a very weird thing for somebody to do to someone outright, say you can't carry your own bus pass. But when a perpetrator systematically breaks someone's agency down, what they do to them is they show them that they're not capable of handling their own bus pass through small and insignificant events, in which the person is led to believe that they genuinely can't be responsible enough for themselves to keep their own bus pass. And so the perpetrator should keep it for them because that person is more responsible than them. (laughs) And so it's a long process of getting to those points where those demands are being made it's not just a demand is made there's a process that leads to those demands being made and a process that leads to someone thinking that not just threats are are credible but also that
0: those demands make sense that that constructing of the reality that only exists between the two of you and it's clear to you and it makes sense in the context of your created reality or one's created reality. But to the outside is completely baffling and really difficult to understand. But also, I don't know what the word is, to understand, but to also put yourself in those shoes to find a way in. It's it's like it's, I like Lindsay's analogy of the cage. It's like you can see there is one, but you can't, you can't find the door and you can't get into it to let the bird out. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie. That was really powerful.
1: So I think the conversation that we've had so far has been really interesting and useful for thinking about the fact that voice of control is very subtle, very nuanced, really difficult to define and pin down. And I think a big Issue with that for us as researchers or those of us who are thinking about activism and how to do something about it is that measuring coercive control, if it's so difficult to pinpoint and pin down, is really difficult. And There's a paper that we've linked in the show notes that is working towards trying to do exactly that, trying to think about how we would measure coercive control, which is a really important thing to do. In that paper, they say something that I think is quite powerful and profound. They say that we lack ready tools to grasp a social behavior that without a clear beginning or end, nonetheless has a demonstrable impact that is cumulative over time and across social space on a class of victims whose lives and liberties become severely constrained. And that just really sums up everything that we've been talking about so far in terms of coercive control and the challenge that we might have in trying to measure that in an individual or across a population. So how can we really come to measure coercive control. Well, that paper, as I said, uh, suggests some tools that could be used in measurement. And I think it would be really good for us to take a look at those. And we're going to get some input on that from you, Lindsay, but also we'll be getting some input from our group of experts by lived experience from the Violence, Abuse and
0: Mental Health Network later on in this episode. So there are three scales or tools that each look at kind of an element of coercive control. So the three elements are the demand, the threat, or the coercion, and the surveillance. And we'll link to each of those in the show notes so you can read them in detail there. But Angelie is going to give us just a nice little summary.
3: Yes. Yeah, so in that first subscale, the demand items aim to measure coercive control. Firstly, through assessing the types of demands made by one partner to another, and it includes a set of 48 items. These demands are put into categories, including personal activities like leaving the house, social and family life, such as talking on the phone or taking care of pets, and household duties such as cooking and cleaning, among others. These demands are then linked to the coercion items in the second subscale. This consists of 31 items and assesses whether a partner made threats contingent with non-compliance of the demands they made. These threats can be threats to harm the self, such as suicide, threats to harm the other partner, for instance using physical violence, or threats to harm others, such as a family member or a child. The third and final subscale contains the surveillance items. This subscale has 13 items which measure behaviours which are used by the partner who made the threats to check whether the victim did in fact do what was initially demanded of them. This could include opening the other partner's mail, keeping track of their phone or stalking them. Lindsay, what are your thoughts on using these subscales to measure coercive control as a dynamic process? And do you think this is an effective way to do it?
2: I think I really like the idea of having three scales that talk to the separate things, right? The coercion items, the demands and the surveillance items. It's probably going to give us a more nuanced approach to trying to measure these things than our kind of normal scales that look at violence, precisely because they're picking up on nuances and subtleties that we wouldn't be looking at in your normal violence scales and I think that the way that they come together is helpful. I think one of the uh, the papers that is attached to the notes for this podcast argues for looking at frequency over number. And so there is debate over how to even use these scales and what we should be looking for. But I think that they're probably going to get us closer to a good measurement. And I say that particularly in light of the fact that both heteronormativity and patriarchy are kind of embedded in society in such a way that we we start to see certain kinds of behaviors, certain kinds of demands and threats and even punishments as kind of natural and inevitable rather than socially constructed and open to change. And when you live in that kind of context, particularly one in which violence is also legitimated and kind of deemed normal, then it's going to be harder for individuals Not only those who are experiencing this kind of violence to identify what they're experiencing, but also for us to measure it using normal scales that are picking up on things that are possibly not happening yet. The meaning of it is so distorted that I think the the more nuanced, the more subtle we can get in trying to pinpoint where these things are happening, the better. I want to just
1: jump in and say that I really do like these scales quite a lot. I think they're very comprehensive. They're very long, which obviously could be challenging in terms of actually collecting the data because people get fatigue and reading through such long lists. But I do like how comprehensive they are because it shows... Just how many facets of demand can be made, how many facets of coercion there are. What I particularly like in the coercion subscale is the, the subscales there speak about harm to you. So harm to the victim, harm to the partners and harm to the perpetrator, which I think isn't spoken about enough. So perpetrators threatening to commit suicide if demands are not met or actually attempting that. I think they don't go far enough in that harm to the partner because there's a lot of other harms that perpetrators threaten and use as a coercion tool and then harm to to others, which I, I have heard used quite a lot. And then in the surveillance items, again, it's just so very comprehensive and very stressful for me to read um, as someone who's experienced this because looking through each one of those is It's quite distressing to recognize when those things have happened to you. But I really like the last item on the surveillance scale, and I'm glad it's there. So the last item says, your partner didn't need to check. Your partner just acted like he or she New, and I think that's what quite an important thing to talk about because I think one of the tactics used by perpetrators is to have a perceived surveillance in operation that keeps people in check. When people are very afraid, there's no real need to have surveillance in place. The perception that surveillance is in place is enough. And that speaks to that core element of coercive control, that setting up a environment of fear and intimidation that makes someone feel terrorized into complete obedience. I like this idea of expanding what's usually included in questions about domestic violence or intimate partner violence, which sometimes only ask Very briefly about even psychological violence and very infrequently about coercive control, although that is happening more. So finding a balance between those, I guess, is useful. But even for people who are designing studies to look through these scales and see the extent of what needs to be included would, I think, be quite useful in getting us to have better measurement tools in the future. I don't know.
0: I think it also speaks to the importance of co-production and survivor involvement in the development of these tools. So many of these items on these checklists, someone who has not been through this experience would not be able to imagine those up. And you need people who've experienced those things to tell you what to, what to look for, what to measure, what to put on your tool. Um because until you include that perspective you're you're really asking about people's perceptions researchers' perceptions of what coercive control is and that's not what you want to be measuring you want to be measuring what people who experience coercive controls actual experience of coercive control is um so yeah co-production is i mean really should be a basic requirement of developing tools like this
3: Yeah, and I think so many other scales are really siloed in terms of the kinds of outcomes that they look at. So you might just have one that looks at mental health consequences for coercive control or ask about the legal experiences. But I think I really liked in the demand subscale how it really takes into account how pervasive coercive con- control can be and how many sectors of your life it does impact. It impacts your household, your health, your relationship, legal implications immigration status and i really liked how it took into account all of those different aspects
4: so
1: let's go to the violence Abuse, and mental health network Lift experience advisory group and hear what they have to say
5: I just was drawn to this um, this list of um, demand items by subscale. Um, and if you're looking at this and thinking how, like, would you put this on a scale? Would you put this on, on a list of, let's say, a checklist on a score a scale of one to five? How many of these have you encountered in your relationship? Um, would that be a way of measuring it and, and say, and then adding up the total? Is that something that... W- Um, because some of these are quite more serious than others for example so I thought is that one way of looking at it like because this list is all over the place you know what I mean so and again some are more serious than others so how would you measure the severity of of these items
4: I mean who and how and when and things like that as well are we looking at those things and I guess it's who with more often than not and for what purpose you know the bit that I struggle with often is it depends on who you're speaking with into what what is serious to them and what isn't at that time or what has been and hasn't and sometimes you don't want to go back to what was serious because you're kind of trying to deny well you might be denying some of those things happened and unfortunately sometimes with all of this hindsight's a wonderful thing oh. when you're in it you're surviving and when you're out of it you're making sense of it somehow or trying to you know and it doesn't make sense always but you, you kind of get a grip of it and understand what it was that was happening to you and yeah those assessments are interesting as to where when and who's doing it and, and what stage of that person's journey you're doing it which so the scales become quite different then that's what I meant you know in the sense of the order of that asking those questions do you stick with the easy wins those that are undeniable
6: mm-hmm. or
4: do you do you get, kind of get a little bit deeper and go into those that are deniable, um, you know, at that point or later on down the line undeniable because you can make sense of it and answer that question properly. I think
5: when I think, of course, control, I think of it as this little like chipping away of this little drip, drip, drip of things yeah. as well. So something yeah. like, so to explain myself better, some of these things may seem quite small, but when you see them on a big list like this, and if someone was to go through and say, wow, yep, it does that, she does that, yep, that's happened to me, that happened to me, so I, I get totally what you're saying, especially about the past. And but when it's laid out and uh perhaps in a in a checklist and maybe on a scale, and then you start to add up all the things that have happened to you, either past, present, um, and then start to see, wow, yeah, I am I am in a relationship or I was in a relationship like that. Um, the little things and the big things add up to be yeah, what what is a, a in a course of relationship. So I think, I think tools like this are, are helpful. It's just how to capture sort of the, the score, as it were. But I, I can totally understand what you mean about uh, different points in your life. And, and it's certainly in the past, some of these things may not have seemed big at all. You know what I mean? But in context and, um, along with everything else and in hindsight were certainly big things. I, I quite like this because
6: it gives me, Oh, yeah, he did a bit of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, a bit of that as well. Um, you know, some of it. Oh, no, not, not that bit. It allows me to
4: think. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I think that's the point. I think in, in relating to the, it's the small things and, and looking back on my life and, and reflecting on it and, and going through various therapeutic things. You know groups and one-to-ones and all sorts over the years and seeing professionals that's one thing within assessment that i've 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 been able to then articulate what's happened or hasn't happened um but also it's always gone back to the small things that that are the big ones sometimes in, in relation to the fact that oh that's the discovery you know actually yeah they did make me feel that way or you know they did they did uh enable this to happen or that to happen and, and and me to feel that way about it. are you guilty about something um doing something that i wanted to do you know i was told i was selfish or you know etc those sorts of things it's like which is when you then start fighting back and then you start to see the big ones and they are the tick box you know the very much the tick box ones when you start to say actually i'm entitled to a bit of time on my own or something and i shouldn't feel guilty about. i want to go and have a good time with friends and be trusted, you know, or whatever, you know, and that doesn't, and it, but these little things build up to that. And I think that's the way that coercive control is why it's so in such a, a thing is that it's the small things that often control you, isn't it? It's not those big ones because the big ones are blatant and people can see them or, you know, from, from a, an abuser's point of view, they can, you know, they, they get caught doing some of those things if that makes sense and it would stop. So it's the small things that keep the control, isn't it? And, and that's. Why it's so difficult, I think, to spot maybe. And, and it was, for, I I wasn't ready to admit it either because it meant I was wrong or I felt wrong. I felt guilty again or whatever else. And it's really hard. Um, but yeah, going back to the, the definition part and this assessment, it, it's quite hard then, isn't it? Because once you've got the definition firm, you can then start to measure. But, but until that, you know, what end of the spectrum or what part of the scale are we looking at in the sense of scores is, is where's the trigger or where's the, the point of concern? It would be the small things that you can't admit, but the big things are the ones that you you can see or evidence. And when I was looking through that, it's a big list, and it could be ordered, you know, in a way of, you know, underlying coercive control to to maybe evident coercive control, but the underlying is probably as important as the as the evident, you know. But I'm I'm
6: I'm also thinking that I would probably need two or three assessments for me, for me to digest and for me to open up to the person who's talking to me who's making the assessment because sometimes assessments can be i don't know it, it it can be um i hate it because in the medical kind of format i hate the fact that when they say oh tell me a bit about yourself and really the undertone is all of that list or you know really you're going in to talk about your depression but you know when when that is such an open question you don't know what to say i think with those questions it has to be
7: it has to be done sensitively. There's also something with like both definition and measurement skills, which is that it lacks that understanding or like insight into the dynamics of a relationship. Like I think it's probably fair to say that no one in a coercive or abusive relationship would stay in it if it was like that all the time. The issue is that like interwoven web, right? If I will chip away and make you feel a little bit guilty here, but I will also do all of these things that like hook you back in and put the onus on you or make you feel guilty or you responsible or, you know, doing things like love bombing or, you know, whatever it is. And that gets missed when you've got definitions of coercive control or when you've got measurements because it only ever looks at the negatives of behaviour. But but no relationship is all of you know, is all one sided, is it? You know, otherwise I think it would be much easier to just kind of stand up and walk away much, much quicker. It's that kind of nuance actually. You know, and there's a question even in that about, you know, where does the definitional measurements allow for like using positive reinforcement or using Good things as a way to actually co- continue that coercing and controlling of somebody.
6: When I was young, my dad would encourage us to do humiliating things by giving us money. So for us, it, it was like play that instrument, but it was a real sense of I want to cry. I don't want to do. I absolutely effing hate it. It was a humiliation. There was nothing, you know, um, it, it was embarrassing. And I think money in my family has such value. For manipulation that it, it really it, it it, like it's almost as that like money can cover up all kinds of hurt so long as i've paid you and I, I know you could it's kind of financial and i there is that kind of element to it in in coercive control but it is such a big thing in my family that it, it's become so big that we would risk our life on it because it is a different currency it is it has more value than anything else
4: yeah yeah i agree and i think if this also the other currency that i've uh, sim- similar you know whether it be financial or what but but it's sympathy as well and it's that that element of sympathy is is a currency which is used often to to suck you in is that element of of Shifting you towards their outcome, but through sympathy, so they'll you know make you feel sorry for them, so on and so forth. Next thing you know, you know you're being conditioned to do something, or you're you're feeling for them, and therefore you you have a context no one else in the room does. But you're being made to do something you feel really uncomfortable with to make them feel better, but no one, but you end up feeling worse. You know those sort of moments where you, that that's just pure power, isn't it? That's that's power over someone more vulnerable than them. That they then make they make you do something and. And you're doing it for their vulnerability but you're then putting yourself in the in the way of that vulnerability and, and everyone's looking at you not them it, you see what i mean it's that element of passing that vulnerability off um or sharing it and that that becomes a currency also where then there's a say maybe a reward of something financial or you know a pair of trainers or whatever else it was at the end for, for myself to say thanks for that because you helped and it's like well how do they help you i did i destroyed myself you know at the same time and I suppose it is that element of, of the reward of everything, isn't it? You know, you go through something and then there's a, a makeup and a, you know, and a, a reward for something and a power, it's power again, isn't it? Through, through kind of, um, positive, if you want to call it positive, but yeah, through control. But it's that positive use of, sorry, that use of positive praise or whatever is the character keeps you back in again and pull you back in. You feel everything's okay for a minute and you, you can take a breather and, and not worry about. Something negative or bad coming down the the, the road or in, in 10 minutes' time or something. But I so see, yeah, you live for that moment, don't you, of, of calm or that moment of happiness or whatever you fight or love, you know, if you want to call it that at that point. I
7: don't know if I like the term love because I think that for me is something I almost don't want like contaminated. But there's something about how people perpetrate coercive control use that it's part of the facilitation of it right like if you'd have said to me at the time did you lose your job because of your ex no i lost my job because he didn't turn up and i was always late why was i always late because my ex would say oh i really don't want to be without you today please stay in bed with me please just hang out with me today i want to spend time with you you know or you know why are you constantly being harassed on the telephone? Oh no, they were just ringing to check out it was okay, or they were just ringing because they couldn't find something, or they were just ringing to say hello because they were lonely and on a break from work. You know, and it's that the positive behaviours are used to justify the coercion, the control, the abuse, the questions. You know, as well as being a like way to continuously lure somebody back into a situation, and that's why I'm. Look, I don't think love or even like or, you know, is the right term for that, but there's something about how perpetrators of coercive control manipulated situations to be able to continue that, that I can't put words on that is lacking from the definition. It's kind of half in there within that, like creating a differential of power, but it's not fully in there in terms of how it carries
4: on.
3: As we come to the end of this episode, it's time for In Their Own Words, a segment where we ask guests to tell us unprompted about anything relating to this topic that they think is important from their own knowledge, experience or perspective, or just something that they simply want to share with you all. Let's hear what Lindsay has to say in their own words.
2: I think one of the key takeaways from me going through this literature and engaging in this conversation with the three of you is just the importance of ongoing feminist work in trying to kind of make sense of our lived experiences there is a, a lot of work that's coming out of philosophy over the past five years, five, ten years, maybe even longer, that looks at gaps in the in the language and the concepts that we are able to use to understand our experiences. And I think the emergence of this concept, right, coming from I think 2007 would start have been where it kind of really came to the fore. I think this is one of those moments where working kind of together together activists theorists and those who have really experienced this kind of abuse come to be able to what they call close a gap in the kind of conceptual resource right with which we are able to understand ourselves and I think this goes back to I kind of I shared your experience when reading these scales going through the demand items going through the threats going through the surveillance items that kind of sense of light dawning on some of one's own experiences where one wasn't so sure whether this was problematic or if one was going crazy, uh, being gaslit or or whatever, you know, whatever word we want to use. But when you see it on paper and you kind of get that validation from other people who've had similar experiences, it allows us to see the political nature of what we might deem to be personal experiences. It just reminds me That there are areas of social experience that are not in the interests of certain dominant groups to explore or interpret. And so that work, that interpretation, that kind of conceptual development, the the co-creation that you're talking about there... Working together to really try and understand these experiences is incredibly valuable for work that we need to be doing to improve the quality of, of women's lives and of the lives of people who are positioned as especially vulnerable and viable. Being positioned as especially vulnerable is part of the structures that enable perpetrators to exercise this kind of control. So us chipping away at silence gaps in our conceptual or discursive resources so that we can really highlight and emphasize the ways in which violence and abuse, intimate partner violence, gender-based violence is very complex and subtle and is not so always visible in your face. So I just want to applaud that um, and recognise the importance of the work.
0: You've been listening to Pulling the Strings. If you'd like further information on anything we've discussed in this episode, or if you have felt affected by anything you've heard, please see our show notes for additional resources. Please do review and subscribe wherever you listen it helps us to find more listeners and means you'll never miss an episode thank you to the violence abuse and mental health network for funding this podcast thank you to our guests and thank you for listening until next time take care